brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go again, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and we know the planet's puppet masters live lives that are nearly indistinguishable from our own, with belief systems we barely get a glimpse of, and a worldview that never trickles down into the education of the masses. But what we do get is a carefully crafted construct telling us what they want us to know about the Earth, the universe, and our place in it, despite much of it being flawed or downright impractical. They draw the line for us between what's scientifically possible and what's science fiction, despite routine crafts in the sky that defy those rules and a suppressed scientific paradigm of electromagnetism and ether physics that's more than valid. And they also brainwash us with a version of history that is constantly being upended by new discoveries that don't fit the mold, but they do very little to update the flawed story, and I wonder why that is. Sometimes the lie is more about what they leave out than what they tell you, and if you do enough digging in almost every subject area, you'll find a real unfolding of information that seems far more internally consistent than the consensus models that they give us. But with all the so-called certified scholars kept in check by the unwritten rules of staying in one's lane and never really rocking the proverbial boat, you're left to build your own world. And today's guest, Ari Asselin, has done just that, pulling information from all sorts of suppressed sources. He has put together many oftentimes compartmentalized pieces of conspiracy culture, alternative science, cosmology, and hidden history to recontextualize reality into a coherent yet epic reconstruction of everything that I'm psyched to get into. You can find his work on his website, ParadigmThreat.net, and I advise you to strap in because it's going to be a wild ride. The reality reconstructor, alternative information investigator, and teller of the Martian truth. Ari, welcome to the higher side. Hi there. Thank you for the intro. Excellent. Thanks, man. And I really appreciate you agreeing to an interview. You bet. This is exciting. (laughs) Glad to hear it. I don't even know how I found your website, but I do think it is really fascinating. You pull in the hollow earth, the electric universe model, Mars, and a history of the earth and the elite that is... The sort of epic alternative reconstruction that I would really get excited about in the early days of this show, and I think this audience is really going to love it. And when a person first goes to your site, they're greeted with this. It reads, not another controlled opposition conspiracy website. 
If you're like me, you've noticed by now that the vast majority of conspiracy theory channels in the Western world have fallen into the category called controlled opposition. They were real at one point, and then something happened, and now they're willing controlled opposition agents. The main giveaway for a CO agent is they say a lot and leave us with no satisfying conclusions. Therefore, the goal of this website is to seek satisfying real or fake conclusions to every conspiracy, right? Why not? And I do like that attitude, that if something is real or accurate, then it should stand up to the pressure of being questioned. And I know we have a lot of material to try to present to people, but tell the audience a bit about the research journey you've been on and the methodology that guides your work, if you could. You bet. This project, and I am a hobbyist, conspiracy theorist, you know, I've not done this in any professional level, but as a hobby, I just opened up a folder and eventually started collecting all of these bizarre memes and factoids that have been spilling through the internet over the last 10 years. After a while, I realized if I don't keep some of these photos, I might not see them again. A lot of these photos get blacklisted and they disappear. So some of the best data that I had was being collected in this folder. I decided to create a website with all the images. Then I decided to give it some content. I just wrote a really kind of ugly script of what I kind of think is the questions to be asked here. And I asked myself a bunch of questions that came to mind and then set on the quest of trying to answer them. So essentially what I have is a huge bucket full of topics that relate to various suppressed truth or things that we haven't been told about or things that are controversial that just haven't been concluded yet. And in this huge mess, I've been trying to sort of order what I believe, as you said, a reconstruction of events that might tie all these things together, but more importantly, deduce a great deal of stuff that just isn't true. I guess my biggest goal here is to deduce things that aren't true rather than get lost in kind of the myriad of alternate explanations that are provided to us by the establishment and the controlled oppositions. So I hope that makes sense there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. And you grouped the different subjects from your site into basically four articles. And the first one is problems with the official history. And much of your reconstruction comes from the electric universe and Saturnian cosmology, which I am a big fan of. I've got shows with both Wall Thornhill and David Talbot in the archive. We've talked to guests about people such as Velikovsky when we can. So... I really do like this radically different paradigm that these folks present and this concept that our solar system works in a completely different way than we're told and Earth has a very epic and different past. Walk us through some of this material and why you find it so credible. You bet. Absolutely. And yeah, this is a great theory. And once you find it, you might jump on it, latch onto it, say, this is it. This is the one for me. I know I did. And some people reject this and say, I'm sorry, there's not enough evidence. So what we're really talking about here is presenting a lot of this, like you just said, has been presented to people in various ways. And I believe that hasn't been presented correctly yet. For example, Saturnian cosmology itself is a debate where a bunch of different authors are actually still arguing over conclusions, date timelines, causality of events, all of it. They don't seem to really have any consensus yet. And so maybe we're not really ready to present some of all of this to the layman because they might reject it. They'll say, I see where you're going, but you're not there yet. So my little mission here was actually, I kind of stumbled upon this primer that helped me 
navigate through this chaos of truth and lies. Essentially, it's predictive programming. And if anyone's unfamiliar with that term, predictive programming is where in our media, in our history, news, books, you name it, you will find redactions that include predictive ideas that you will encounter in the future, things like racism, things like world politics, and they program you to have a specific response to those predictive events of the future. This predictive programming has studies done about it. I've seen plenty in the past, calling it out in movies, everything, you name it, it's all over the place. So the only question is, what is predictive programming? And the only question I've ever asked is every time I look at history, movies, some kind of contradiction that just doesn't fit or doesn't satisfy, I say, what does the predictive programming want me to take away from this event? And so as it turns out, we actually have a great deal of evidence available pointing us directly at the real truth of all of this. And so much of it is tied up in A, predictive programming, and B, literature where a lot of people are still kind of fighting. So you see, in between that, I kind of found a primer where I can sort of rule out things that aren't true and sort of focus on what could be the truth so I can have some kind of imagination for it myself. Otherwise, I, just like everyone else, would be lost in the myriad of possibilities. So yeah, just a little quick intro of predictive programming there. But my goal for this first article then was to start a person who's very familiar with the mainstream approach, the, the dogma of the establishment science, NASA, and so forth. And start with what they know, because they're going to be built on that world. The rules, the causality is built on that reality. So we're talking about, of course, 4.5 billion-year-old Earth. The sun is 4.6 billion, just a little bit older. The universe itself is three times as old, 13.8 billion years old. And the whole thing started with this big bang, right? That's the current cosmology, which is a uniformitarian and sort of chaotic, if you will. And in contrast to uniformitarian chaotic cosmology, where things happen over billions of years, we have catastrophism, which is what Saturnian cosmology is based on. Catastrophism explains our solar system's history as recent, cataclysmic, and one thing after another. There was no periods of millions or billions of years involved. So, you know, again, we have these two wildly contrasting viewpoints, and we need some kind of primer to navigate them. I've been reading literature available, and I should start with David Talbot, because he's the first guy I saw. He came up with that book, Saturn Myth, and for the first time, anyone has presented the idea that Saturn, the planet Saturn, may have been the planet that created Earth, and Earth was a moon of Saturn in the origin story of Saturnian cosmology. So this was a big controversy. It got shut down. And before him, Emmanuel Velkovsky, who was the guy who really put all this stuff together in the Western world, actually was not even allowed to say his conclusion. His conclusion, of course, was Saturn. But his books excluded that one thing for 10 years, giving David Talbot this chance to make his book, The Saturn Cosmology. And then Talbot kind of faded into obscurity. So there's sort of like evidence that the closer you get to the Saturnian explanation, the more you're just going to find cover-up and dispute and no primer. So that's sort of the background of this debate. Yeah, I think that that's a really good uh, introduction. I think this audience is pretty familiar with predictive programming, and I think that the logic is right, that if 
you look at something, the further suppressed it is, the more that that's probably uh, some kind of valid conclusion. And right. I've always liked that about this Saturnian idea that Saturn was once our original sun. Right. And it's just such an epic idea, especially when you unravel the cosmology we have now. It's like, well, big epic things like that don't seem to happen. Uh, the way we're presented with our solar system is that it's very static and fixed and there just isn't a lot of change in it or obviously that change happens once in a billion years and so to think about it in this different context is really interesting so for people who maybe are a little less familiar with the bullet points of the saturnian cosmology story what would you say are the major points in the earth's history starting from that initial point when uh, we basically sprung into life from the light of Saturn. Absolutely. So that would be a reconstructed timeline of Earth's history. That would be my second article. And my first article is geared towards trying to get them out of the current mindset. So if you don't mind, I want to go over a couple notes here of where I see the flaws in the current establishment cosmology. Because if you don't talk about that, then people are just going to say, well, NASA knows better than you. Who are you? That kind of thing. Sure, sure. There's a lot of things to point out here that, even to me, are a huge surprise. Now, I don't have to tell anyone that the Big Bang Theory has a lot of critics of it, but a lot of people don't really know where our uniformitarian theory came from. So let me just go to this Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. So 1910, right before World War I, you got Harvard creating this diagram of a sun chart. Sun chart diagram it tells you, if you look at the stars, how far each star is, how big it is based on its luminosity and surface temperature. Now, this one star chart is very important to understand because it was sort of slipped in there into our astronomy without anyone having a chance to criticize it. It was based entirely on the expanding universe theory. So what we're talking about is in Harvard, they just decided that the stars are this big, they're this far away, they're all expanding from a point in the center of the universe, and that point is emanating from 13.77 billion years ago, that kind of thing. So we're talking about separation between the belief that planets, suns, are hollow versus the belief that they are solid. So in the uh, uniformitarian cosmology, all planets and suns are solid, and therefore have a solid mass, a huge mass actually, and this mass is therefore responsible for all gravity. Now, if you consider the possibility that suns and planets are hollow, and that that's one cover-up, you have to look at the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram at the possibility that that diagram itself is a cover-up of hollow Earth too, since it insists on the certain masses of very distant stars, and it basically creates what I call the simulated astronomical universe. Why is it simulated? Because one person can look through a telescope and see, you know, light years, billions of light years of distance. Another person can look through that same telescope and see a very small universe. And they would disagree as to what they're looking at. So our simulated universe, our huge light years across, billions of light years across, our 13 billion years old, all of those numbers come from this one diagram, this Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, which was created by Harvard. And I'll just point out that these guys also create eugenics, race eugenics. In the same year, they promoted those kinds of policies. And in 1692... They were the ones who did the Salem Witch Trial to give people some context of who Harvard is. These guys were deeply religious and on a quest to dominate humanity. 
for whatever reason. I mean, that's what their history shows. So this one diagram, which all of uniformitary cosmology is based on, has to be looked at. But there was actually something way more surprising to me than that, which I found, which was our accretion theory. The theory, the nebular hypothesis, which suns and planets formed from accretion over millions or billions of years, was proposed by a man named Emanuel Swedenborg. And he was a Swedish mystic. And I've been looking at his website, Heaven and Hell here. He sought to explain why the Lord was willing to be born on earth and not on heaven and hell. This guy in his literature talked about life on other planets. This is not the person that people would expect to have invented the theories of modern cosmology that you know people like Newton and Einstein base all of their theories on. This guy was a Swedish mystic and he had a religious agenda. So there's some other examples here, but I'm finding that all of our secular sciences are actually based on religious redactions in the last past few centuries by people that we really probably shouldn't trust at all. All right. So I made that point there. <laughs> and it's a good point to make. You're right that if you trace a lot of things back that are considered widely held Western assumptions, sometimes they come from strange places. And if we know that the advancement of certain ideas can be based on an agenda, well, it's important to know who put those ideas out first. So I'm with you there. And it's good to deconstruct flimsy conventional models first, but let's get deeper into this model you've put together from a few different important sources. As I mentioned, I am a big fan of both the Electric Universe and the Hollow Earth, but the deeper we go, the more radical it can seem, which is why it's fun stuff to consider. Yeah. But let me read a bit from your website here where you say, Suns and planets are both charged hollow bodies, so there is no way to determine the mass of hollow stars. Right. In 1972, Ralph Jurgens stated, I can find no way to state this diplomatically, so let me be blunt. The modern astrophysical concept that ascribes the sun's energy to thermonuclear reactions deep in the solar interior is contradicted by nearly every observable aspect of the sun. And then you go on to say orbital and surface gravity of a sun or planet is dependent on its charge, not its mass. Even though Jurgen's electric sun theory became the core component of the electric universe hypothesis, he is still ignored by academia. In 1979, Jurgens died of unknown causes only two months after publishing his last paper, Stellar Thermonuclear Energy, A False Trail? In 2007, Wikipedia deleted the entry for Ralph Jurgens. Apparently, the establishment wants his theories to die with him. Nevertheless, in 2018, NASA has begun to accept the possibility of hollow planets and gas giants. Too little, too late. Well, we've talked about hollow planets and stars here before, so that's probably not a shock to anyone listening, but it is that last line that I found so curious. Where do we see NASA coming around to hollow planets and stars as of 2018? Yeah, did you see that article? I did, but for the audience, I hoped you could elaborate a little bit. I wasn't sure if that was one of several indications they were opening up on this stuff or not, but... Either way, I guess we do have at least one admittance, right? Yeah, just a link to the one from universeparticles.com, which described the theory that 2017 theory by NASA that Jupiter has a diffuse core that might have hollow 
concentric circles within it. So they're coming around to this possibility because Jupiter is a gas giant, and it's been impossible to explain it as a solid planet until now. But regardless of that point, I want to just point out that Ralph Jurgens was covered up even as recently as 2007 by Wikipedia, even though people like Emmanuel Velkovsky reference him significantly. So why would Wikipedia ever delete this guy's article is beyond me. But that they're starting to come around or not coming around to hollow planets, that I actually don't know. They may not be. But I did see that one article and it said that NASA is suggesting that Jupiter may have a diffuse core that's spread out more like in a gaseous state, which would make it more hollow than solid in the inside. Gotcha. But uh, yeah, to concentrate more on Ralph Jurgens, his whole point was suns are negative or positive. You know, you look at everything in terms of electricity in the universe, and you will see the real source of gravity. It's not mass, it's negative and positive. So I actually thought a lot about his theories and was able to understand how it relates to Saturnian cosmology. During his time and the time of David Talbot in the 80s, 90s, these guys did not have plasma physics or any understanding of plasma physics. I remember plasma physics was sort of introduced in the early 90s in video games and movies and stuff, long before it was introduced in school. And in third grade, I actually had a weird story where I was trying to report on this. And I told my teacher that plasma is this fourth state of matter. And she said, no, it's not. It's you know something in your blood. So yeah, <laughs> as you can see, plasma in the 90s was still very new. So these guys could not have understood how this Saturnian cosmology really works out. If we're talking about just gravity, that doesn't sound possible at all. But we're talking about positive and negative charge plasma playing out. And that's a very different kind of thing, very different simulation. Absolutely. And it's really interesting to reverse engineer everything we think we know about the cosmos and then put it in this new context. And I think you're nailing it. Excellent. Let me go to the next bullet point here that is kind of what I'm basing this investigation on. The point that Velikovsky made in his books, the point that stands till today, is that all of the civilizations on Earth made recordings of all of these events. That these recordings may be crude, like rock art, pendants and stuff, but they are archetypes and they can be correlated into an archetype history. So that was a major important point, is that we have to decide if we're going to determine Earth history by things like carbon dating, you know, cut the age of the rock, or if we're just going to look what was carved on the rock by people who were actually there, our ancestors. And we got to stop assuming that our ancestors were naive or dumb or doing it for pointless reasons. Instead, they're doing it because it was the only way to tell the stories that they have actually experienced. So that's another huge bullet point is that we really should take the testimony of ancient civilizations as possibly the truth and not discount them as we've been doing. Mm -hmm. I agree with you there, but don't we still have to make some leaps of logic or draw some conclusions to get us to that Saturnian cosmology? Because it's never really spelled out in plain English. Obviously, they use different language, but we have to interpret their symbols and their carvings and their petroglyphs. And those symbols can be misinterpreted, of course. But oh, yeah. how do we know? How can we make a good case that this is what they were trying to relay to us, that 
this is the story of Earth, that it's quite weird that it started with Saturn as the sun. That's exactly it. That's the question. How can we come to an agreement on this? As I said, the different authors that have written on this, they don't seem to agree. And it's mostly because each one has to fill in a lot of blanks with their own imagination, which is where I found myself actually being able to do some of these things. I can actually imagine the origin story quite well in my imagination because I wrote physics simulations as a kid. I just am in love with physics, always have been, kind of just simulate things. And it wasn't until I heard about this plasma style physics that I just inverted everything I knew about physics in general, just everything inverted. Now we have a totally different kind of reality, a different type of origin story where things have occurred back then that cannot possibly happen now. We can barely reproduce them in the laboratory, that kind of contrast. So I was starting to understand this so-called golden age as a high energy period of perfect conjunction, like a planetary harmony occurring in this solar system in a very short-lived period that every civilization saw. And they have different perspectives on the whole thing too. And so we can pretty much start from there, this conjunction, and we can go all the way to here and try to imagine what really could have been the story that whole time, all of those cataclysms. What were those cataclysms? What were the people recording? And I think this can be solved. Not only can it be solved, I think there are those out there, as you're well aware in the show, that harbor the most valuable knowledge that there is. And this would be some of that knowledge. So they would do everything they can to prevent us from going down these paths, to find this knowledge, to put it together, which is it's amazing to me that almost all of the conclusions are right there in our movies, in our media, like that movie Thor, the recent MCU movie, the three ones that came out, all had to do with a conjunction, had to do with realms based on Norse mythology, had to do with teleportation. It's all right there, except they expanded it into this big universal rule system rather than a local cosmic solar system rule system. But they know the truth. The people who ordered those movies to exist, or rather the ones who wrote the comics in the first place, <laughs> and they all knew the truth. They're raised in the truth. So it's right there for us to grab. This isn't really something that's going to be all that hard to figure out. We absolutely lack the courage to do it. And that's what I found, especially <laughs> with a lot of these authors. Unfortunately, I can understand why they have to write their book and they want their book to be published and they're going to make compromises. So even my favorite authors, I have to say, I understand they're compromised and I understand why. And you just got to look between that layer of protection and see the truth behind it. It's actually something really simple. I think we can all grasp in the end. So mm-hmm. sort of that's where my path is right now. <laughs> I like it. And I am a big fan of ideas and paradigms that adhere to things like as above, so below. And the same processes of nature just being at different scales And the one thing I liked was that description of the Earth as something like a seed until it enters Saturn's light. And then life sprang into action as a seed would spring into life as well. And this is a big part of the Electric Universe model that Saturn was the original sun, of course. Mm -hmm. And we can see all the stories and the symbols of our ancestors. But give us that story of how do we get from this golden age of Saturnian light to where we are now. That's the thing that I think people scratch their heads on. Oh, yeah, you bet. And here's going to be the story now. It's kind of long, so just interrupt me when I'm going on too long. I will let you deliver it in full because there's a lot of things we want to get to, but this is important foundational context. So give us that story, and then uh, on the other side, we'll build it out. You got it. 
So here's the story to the best of my imagination and understanding. First of all, I had to choose a starting point, a starting date, which I chose 4077 BC because Jeanneau Cook uses this date and his book seems to be one of the best references for different civilizations, different calendars, different dates. But I will point out that there are many different origin dates and many different civilizations and these things are very much in dispute. So to rule out a lot of the chaos of dispute, I had to just settle on one perspective where the timeline started at 4077 BC and that is the first memory of mankind. Before that, we didn't have any memory and there wasn't really much sense of life, not here on Earth or anywhere else in this conjunction I'm about to describe. So what happens? So in the beginning, in the beginning you got this L-type brown dwarf system. Now brown dwarf system is understood to be a low energy sun that does emanate its own energy. Saturn does release twice as much heat as it receives from the sun, according to NASA. So it qualifies as one of these. However, the current version of Saturn as we see it is a small gas giant with a ring. Now the Saturn as it first existed had all of the planets in it, including Jupiter and Venus and Neptune and Uranus and Nibiru, the ninth planet. It had all of them, all of them together inside this one gas giant at the beginning before it encountered our sun. It was by itself and it was floating through our galaxy as a L-type brown dwarf. And this is a layered gaseous planet. Or I'm sorry, no, it's like a sun with plasma layers and it has many layers. It has like seven or eight layers. And on the inside of it, you have this space where rock planets actually orbit on the inside. So it's sort of like an inverted solar system. And the planets on the inside, well, actually there's there's evidence that this is how planets are formed. So let me back up really fast. In our sun, there are suns hollow, right? And you have reactions occurring on the outside, hydrogen and helium, creating energy, but also creating heavier elements. These elements in the hollow sun fall to the center of the sun. They form planets. These planets sort of orbit each other. And when they get too big and too charged, the sun actually ejects them. There's videos on YouTube where you can actually see our sun ejecting a planet. This happens. It's disputed, but there's videos of it. These planets will then collect in something like a L-type brown dwarf. So anyway, this system had rock plants in it. It had a bunch of gas in layers, and it reached our sun's internal system. Our sun is a positively charged sun, and the brown dwarf Saturn was also positively charged. When they entered each other's environment, Saturn became negatively charged in order to compensate for the environment. But that stripped off its first layer. So the first layer of Saturn came off as soon as it touched our sun, and Saturn exploded. This first layer exploded off. This would be the first date of creation, the first origin story, the first let there be light moment. Before that, Saturn was sort of dormant. And after that moment, Saturn was receiving energies from the sun, tremendous amount of energies that were changing everything about it. For example, that first layer stripped off. The huge gaseous layer of the brown dwarf Saturn stripped off and became Jupiter. Right away, you have a creation of Jupiter at the beginning of the origin story. And this is referenced in several mythologies that Saturn, Kronos, and it goes by different other names too, had a bunch of children. Saturn was alone with the children, did not have other siblings. And Saturn 
did eat these children and did spit them out later. So the mythology confirms that this brown dwarf was going through this transformation, stripping layers off of it, and these layers would become gas giants. And then the energy that flew through the Saturnian configuration would force everything within it into a collinear alignment. Why would this happen? Well, you basically have a tremendous amount of energy flowing through all the planets. There's a diagram here. Let me pull it up. Levitating eggs and the vortex. If you understand vortex physics, you can understand that it has pinch points inside the vortex, inside a tornado. Inside these pinch points, you can sort of like grab a planet and keep it there. So essentially what you have is a perfect straight line of collinear configuration of planets that are forced to stay together. And they're all pointing at the sun. You follow me so far? Yes, definitely. Excellent. All right, so here's how the configuration plays out. First you had the sun, and then you had Jupiter closest to the sun. Behind that, you had Saturn. And Saturn was the part that we could see. You look up in the sky in the North Pole, any part of Earth, and you would see Saturn fixed in the North Pole. And behind it would be Jupiter, but you couldn't see Jupiter. Behind Jupiter, you'd see the sun, and you'd see the light of the sun. That light would create a crescent. So you basically have a star and crescent shape. And you see this in Islam and Freemasonry. You see it all over the place. That is an occult symbol that goes all the way back to the origin story, the star and the crescent. So this configuration slowly rotated, and the crescent slowly rotated, and the planet, Earth, and Mars, other, other parts, other realms in this location, this configuration, experienced night and day, but they did not experience seasons yet because there was no tilt yet because the configuration was still in line. So configuration from Saturn, you look up, you see Saturn, but in front of it, you see Venus, and Venus is not a solid sphere. It's a spread out star shape, six or eight or 10 or more lines. In front of Venus, you see either Mercury or Mars or both. And this red Mars appeared to be the apple of the eye of Venus. Altogether, you got this configuration that looked like a circle with a star in it and then an eye in the very center. And we see this symbol throughout mythology. So obviously, it means something. So we're tracing it back to the origin story. On Earth, if you looked up at the northern hemisphere, you would see that, right? But if you walk to the other side of Earth, the southern side, you would see something else entirely. You'd see the southern configuration, which is called Pratt's Column, which is Anthony Pratt discovered it in 2003 when he was looking at petroglyphs. He said this Pratt's Column shape of three plasmoids must have appeared at either the north or south pole of the Earth. Now, he disputes, of course, all Saturnian cosmology does not buy any of that stuff. He says these plasmoids were aurora borealis times a thousand and not any kind of configuration of plants. But I believe that he's made a mistake there, that he's compromised by the establishment, which doesn't allow him to see outside of that box. And he's describing three intense plasmoids on the southern hemisphere. There's other people who did this too. For example, the Norse literature, they described the realm of Muspelheim. I know I'm not getting that word right. Muspelheim, one of the realms in Norse mythology. And he said, this would be in Snorre's Edda. It states, still there was before a world to the south, which was called Muspelheim, 
It is light and hot and so bright and dazzling that no stranger who is not native there can stand it. When I read that, I was blown away. I was like, wow, how could such a realm exist in the collinear configuration in the Eden times, in the perfect times? And the answer to that question is the Southern Hemisphere wasn't so perfect. It was far less buffered by gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn. It had smaller giants, Uranus, Neptune, possibly Nibiru. These created the great stick man figure, the first man, the one that appears in all mythology and the Incas and so forth. And this blazing stick figure, this three-pointed figure, was so hot that if you were not somebody who could stand it, then you would not want to stay there. You'd go back to the Northern Hemisphere, into Eden, into the Garden. So what we have here is an explanation for skin color and for giants. So follow me here. Giants exist because in the origin times, in the 930-year period of the collinear configuration, the different realms experienced different amplitudes of energy. All this energy was safe, and it passes through you. It was not, didn't appear as lightning. It was passing through the planets in a safe way. So if you stood in a, one location, you'd receive this much energy. In another location, you'd receive more. If you went to the southern hemisphere, you'd receive a great deal of energy. Any creature that lived in an area that received great deals of energy became huge. Creatures that lived in places with no energy were small. So you basically have the scaling of all creatures in this origin period, and you have the creation of all giants on the southern hemisphere, the ones who could stand it, the ones whose skin became dark, and the ones who would later evolve into much smaller people, humans, who then, you know, married and stuff. And now we have light and dark skinned people, which literally came from the north and south hemispheres of the planet. Of course, this might sound extreme, might be offensive. I don't even know if it's true, but it seems <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of evidence seems to be pointing at that. And I think it's a rather benign origin story. I think it, it's quite a peaceful conclusion, if you ask me. Yeah. So yeah, that, this configuration period, this 930-year period, I could talk all day about it. It's so much literature to talk about. The Norse, for example, in their realms, Midgar was where most people lived, and most humans would see this location in the North Pole, this giant tree that just, it's an energy, tree of energy, flowing from the North Pole up into the other planets, into like a bigger tree, into essentially Saturn, which some people said, you know, that is our creator, and other people disagreed. There's one other thing I can talk about here, and that's Atlantis and the Atlantis theory. Want me to go into that? Sure, please. But, so right here, we're talking about all mythologies converging. And if Atlantis existed, here's how it would have existed. There's very little literature for it, you know, Plato and so forth. And none of it really matters so much as that if we use our imagination, we could sort of figure out these things. The literature I did find described three major kingdoms of Atlantis. They're called Pisidia, Og, and Arian. Of course, we've heard Arian before. Pisidia would be the very center one, and it was the most important one. It was a city built in the very center of the North Pole of the Earth, which pointed, which uh, the energy from the Earth is flowing straight up into the sky at that point. So if you build anything there, you have extremely high energetic buildings. You'll have everything, magic, you name it. So they did. They built this Pisidia Emerald City, as it's been described in all literature. And of course, in redacted literature, we've seen emerald cities. They always describe this one specific location as high energy. And from what I understand, these crystals 
can be grown left-handed or right-handed in the ground to become any size and carved into any shape. So you see how, as long as the crystals are growing fast, they can build an emerald city out of it. So pretty cool. These guys invented all of the origin technology all at once in this one location due to extremely high, safe energies passing through it, the abundance of emeralds and things like that. So now let's talk about the deep state, because the deep state is essentially this concept that has influenced Earth affairs one way or another, or maybe it hasn't. Maybe I'm all wrong. But if it has, then we have to trace its origin story all the way back to this point, where everything was benign and everything was fine, and suddenly things weren't. So here's what I believe happened. In Pisidia, they did have the advanced technology, but they didn't necessarily want to share the knowledge. So they essentially became a Wizard of Oz situation, where they told people that there was this invisible or visible god that they needed to worship and ask for all of the things that they want. People would come to Pisidia for knowledge, for technology, for healing, you name it. It was the place to go, and they considered themselves the tree of knowledge. Pisidia was the tree of knowledge. So as it turns out, inevitably, the need to suppress knowledge to keep it a secret would have created a deep state society in Pisidia that sort of was the origin of the class system that we know today. You have people at the top who have secret knowledge, people anywhere below the top who are slaves to the people at the top who know the truth. In Og, in the literature, we're told that this location was completely dominated by Pisidia. So whatever this trick was to influence people to believe in these visible or invisible godheads actually worked on a small number of people. It didn't work on everyone, and we have this conflicting Norse mythology viewpoint, the Aryan viewpoint, which says there were no such creator gods and we didn't worship any creator gods. So right there in the origin, we have two different perspectives on is there God or not? And you have people there that are actually simulating gods in Pisidia using high technology to convince people that they're in charge and that their priests represent God's word. So this Atlantis situation, I believe, occurred entirely naturally. It was just the people living there. It did not involve aliens or any kind of influence. It didn't need it. It happened on its own. So then the downfall of Atlantis must have also happened on its own. After a 930-year period of the Golden Age, Atlantis was known to have collapsed into the Earth, into a deluge or many different ways of looking at it. Now, there was no water deluge yet, and Earth didn't have that much water yet, so Atlantis didn't sink into the ocean. It sank into a deluge, the first one, the Great Flood that occurred at the end of the Golden Age. And this flood was a consequence of Earth passing through one of the Abyssu layers of Saturn's brown dwarf system. Abyssu means the abyss. It's referenced in Norse and Christian mythology as this huge sea in the sky. Not the sea on the ground, but in the heavens. A layered sea that is horizontal with the equatorial zones and covers the stars. You can barely see the stars through it. Now, this is actually water. And in plasma form, in hot form, it's plasma, but when it's cold, it's water. And the rings of Saturn actually contain the exact same water and concentration of salt as do our oceans here on Earth. So various studies have traced the absolute layers of Saturn 
to the creation of all of our oceans here on Earth. In fact, nobody knows where the salts from our Earth oceans did come from. They suggest it must have been some salt source, but we've never found a salt source. So hmm. that is not explained. We need to know where the salt came from. So that was from the first great deluge, the one that sunk Atlantis. But what really sunk Atlantis? Here's what really sunk Atlantis. As you recall, there's this configuration holding everything in place with a strong electric force. And as soon as this configuration broke up, Atlantis was no longer supported in its location. That location, the north section of Earth, would become a hole. It would fall into the Earth and become the northern hole. If you believe in hollow Earth theory, then you're aware that there is a northern hole. Yes. And there also, you must have heard by now that people believe Atlantis can be found in the ruins of the North Pole or the South Pole. You know, it's all over the place. Right. And that's really interesting because there are some maps that show like a landmass at the top and rivers kind of converging in a cross formation. And they all have names. The rivers and the landmasses have names on this map. And sure, people can make any map they want. You could make a detailed map of Middle Earth and then a thousand years later, people would think that it was real potentially. Yeah. So I know that's in the mix, but at the same time, what you're saying, it's kind of interesting to think that maybe this was a map before the land sunk and now there's a hole there. That's right. And it's split into four. And if you look closely in that map, there's this weird stone right in the center. There's a weird rock. Have you noticed that? No, not off the top of my head. In, in some of those four section maps that you referenced, there's a stone in the center. And this stone, according to literature, is the very top of the Atlantis city. It fell into the earth, but it got stuck. And the very top of it is still there. They said this stone is sticking out of the vortex of the North Pole in its early formations and has magnetic properties. Wow. So it's just, it's like, wow, that's the very top of their huge pyramid thing they built there in Pisidia, essentially. Yes. And there is mythology about a big magnetic mountain at the top of the planet. It just keeps pointing to the same thing. Is this, well, once you look into Saturnian cosmology, maybe you have a way of explaining how this can happen. But without that, I've seen the theories. A lot of people say Atlantis was, you know, aliens came to visit and they had like their own artificial moon up there in the sky that gave them energy. It's like, well, a second artificial moon sounds a lot like what I'm talking about, the collinear configuration providing energy, you know? These stories are very similar. So we're close to the truth, I believe. <laughs> I love it, man. It's fun regardless. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about pyramids because this is where it gets pretty epic. Oh, yeah. Let me read from your website again. You say, quantum entanglement. During the Golden Age, there was an overabundance of high-amplitude, low-voltage energy flowing through each planet in the configuration, which Norse refers to as the Bifrost. Right. As the planets in this configuration did not spin, each north and south pole acted as a strong quantum entanglement between planets. Building pyramidal structures upon these locations enabled humans to travel instantaneously through the Bifrost. This may sound outlandish. However, the Egyptians had a symbol for the Boat of Ra, which transported Ra between each planet, and it looks a lot like a modern-day depiction of a wormhole. Talk to us a little bit more about pyramids, because this is a pretty out-there idea, but it's crucial to your reconstruction. Obviously, we have pyramids all over the Earth, and there are some images that look very much like pyramids on Mars. So how could this be? Right, absolutely. This is a weird factoid that is in literature. And we're talking about instantaneous teleportation. It's like, how do they do that? Well, here's the thing. No one invented instantaneous teleportation. 
they discovered it. It was abundant back there. It was possible on its own. So let's talk about what it is. Quantum entanglement is the idea of quantum physics, which contrasts with Einsteinian relativity and says that you cannot put energy into the earth. You cannot destroy it. If you push on one side of an electromagnetic field of any nature, you will be pushing on the other side at the same time in a quantum fashion. This has also been referred in the Schrodinger's paradox, where people that think that particle physics is the explanation to physics cannot explain wave-like behavior in particle physics. So that's the backdrop for quantum entanglement. Now, I believe with just a little leaf of faith here that these guys weren't lying, that they really did stumble upon a technology that you don't build it, you just walk over to it. You create a bunch of circle of stones in a location. Those stones will make it a little safer. You stand into the center of the stones in uncertain circumstances. You will teleport to another circle of stones on the other end, the next planet over, over there like on Mars or something. And then you can come back. Is this possible? Is it not? Well, there's a lot of other reasons to believe in quantum teleportation that I don't really need to get into now, but I will say that, yes, this is a basis of my entire pyramidal empire theory. <laughs> pyramidal empire is the only way to maintain an empire due to the limitations of our cosmos. We have things we can do and things we can't do. And it turns out that the craziest things that we can do might also be the most powerful tools to maintain an empire. So that's my theory as to why I would call it a pyramidal empire. So now let's get into the pyramids. The pyramids are this huge unsolved question today. I just see article after article pointing out another perspective of the whole thing, looking at it differently. For example, we need to stop looking at Egypt as a location of pyramids since it's right next to Iraq and Iran and other locations that have way bigger pyramids that are far more spectacular. They're just being covered up for some reason. In fact, there are pyramids all over the equatorial zone of the earth. So right there, we have a clue. We have all these pyramids built all over the equator of the earth in the tropical regions. Maybe they weren't tropical when they were built. That's a clue because obviously it's hard to build pyramids in a desert. So we can just assume that the conditions might have been better back when they were being built. So one other trick about the pyramids, now I've only confirmed this on one article, but it seems that all, all the biggest pyramids of earth were built in less than 200 years. I know that a huge string of pyramids were built in a very short time, especially the ones in Egypt were built in 200 years. So the question to ask here is, why would anyone build pyramids? And why would they build them all at once? And then why did they stop building them? You know, what was the nature of this quick pyramid dealio? Who even had the means to do that? They must have convinced a lot of people to do that. So again, we can just kind of drop everything we know about empires and just imagine humans stumbling on this technology again and deciding what to do with it. You got those people convincing everyone, we need to build these pyramids. Because with that technology, we're finding these ley lines across the earth. These ley lines were the same energy that we saw in Atlantis. So essentially, I'm thinking that it was Atlantis people that convinced everyone to build the pyramids. Don't know for sure. But they would have suggested if we build the same pyramids in the same way on those ley lines, we can do the same things. We can communicate between them. We can feel healthier because you stand inside that energy flow, you live forever and stuff. You can even teleport. You can do all these crazy things from the golden age. Were they able to? Maybe, maybe not. Here's why it doesn't matter. After that 200-year period, nobody was building any pyramids anymore. So we can assume that whoever built them 
got what they wanted out of them. The ability to communicate across the planet in real time due to the, well, I'll explain that one really quickly. The pyramids would be harnessing energy that's periodically crossing the Earth. And as that energy creates quantum entanglements between locations, it may not be enough to teleport, but it certainly is enough to send messages. You create chambers within the pyramids, you put either stone, gem, or gold, metal, idols, rocks, godheads, things like that in the center of the chamber. The energy will coalesce to that point in the center of the chamber. If you knock it with a hammer, if you speak to it, to the idol, then the idol on the other pyramid may hear it. And this is a way to simulate gods. This is something that we see in Egyptian literature and also in the Hebrew Exodus story. We see people making idols and trying to talk to them and stuff. We just don't know why they're doing this, you know? So I'm offering a possibility here. It's because these pyramids actually had a function to them. And this function did not free humanity or help anyone in any way. They only allowed this Atlantean deep state to reassert control over everyone here, on Mars, anywhere that you can go. Why do I think Mars? Well, because people find pyramids on Mars. So we have to assume that maybe that is a shared story here, that these pyramids connect to each other on Earth and to the ones on other planets in the configuration. <laughs> yes, I, I love it. And this is obviously very epic. And when you dive into your website, it's also very dense. You go through a ton of biblical stories and recontextualize them in this paradigm. And there's obviously way more uh, than we can talk about today. But because you've mentioned the elite and the deep state and Mars a few times in the first hour, I really wanted to try to throw that log on the fire as well. The ruling elite, you, you go much deeper than the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds. And you say that they are Martian, even maybe to this day, controlling us from Mars. Fold that in for us. Oh, you bet. So as you see, that we have a shared origin story here that includes Mars. Mars wasn't a distant planet this whole time. It was right there in the colonial configuration with people transporting in between. So after the configuration broke up and the planets started to find their long-term orbits, they're cut off from each other. And it wasn't until modern times that the people who may have been left on Mars were able to reassert control of Earth. This is my more modern part of the history reconstruction timeline, where I describe that something really fishy happened with the Vatican in the 12th century, where they sort of create a bunch of fake history prior to that, and reset a bunch of dates that were close together and stretched them out into long periods. They did all kinds of weird things back then. So who was behind that? Well, there might have been somebody on Mars who was slowly trying to create a religion on Earth. And if I'm right about that, then I think I have the motivation for the entire Cathar suppression by the Catholic Church, which is a sort of a linchpin in history, which leads to all of the events of modern day, one after the other. It was all about this Cathar suppression, trying to suppress the Gnostics from challenging the narrative of the central church authority. And in that conflict, they created Judaism, Islam, modern Christianity. It was all right there. So sure, we could have done that on our own, but they also could have been influenced from some worlds. So that's where my Mars theory basically comes from. <laughs> I like it. And you have this section about how the Martians control us since the configuration of the planets are now screwed up and the pyramids don't work anymore. But you write, Travel to Earth, despite what you've seen on Star Trek and Star Wars, space travel via spaceship is impossible for living beings. 
Earth's electromagnetic field flows through our bodies and keeps us alive. If we were to leave it or get anywhere near the Van Allen belts, we would die. Exposing yourself or your spaceship to the sun's EM field would be certain death, regardless of size. Martians can only safely get to Earth via natural or man-made quantum gates, like CERN, which only operate when the planets are in opposition every 26 months. No living creature could survive space travel in a small cylinder, nor can it survive a comet-like re-entry burn, nor can it survive for days inside scalding metal, but a remote-controlled machine can. When Martians lose control over the gates, they lose control over Earth, and they must use other means to reassert control remotely. Martians cannot travel between planets on cylinders, but they can send robots through space and remote control robots on Earth. Okay, well, there's a lot to unpack there. Yes, there is. And there is a section of your site about the sort of tripod robots we saw in War of the Worlds, and you referred to H.G. Wells as a plagiarist who fictionalized a real event that took place in London in the 17th century. And we are off to the races now. This is a very unique take. And I know it's probably a lot to to summarize there, but can you fold some of this in and elaborate on how this story plays out? Yeah. You know, I want to try to use your imagination if you're a Martian, a human on Mars that really needs to try to assert control over Earth for whatever reason. There's only very few ways you can do it. So let me back up to what you said earlier. Yes, I'm claiming that space travel, as we know it, is impossible. The way depicted in Star Wars and Star Trek and so forth, just hop in the ship and you go. There isn't much evidence here as to one way or the other. Since we don't go to space, we can't see for ourselves. We're trusting NASA and other people, Lockheed Martin, with all these facts. But we do have some clues. And if you watch the documentary, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Moon, which is a popular documentary that points out that the Apollo missions have issues with them. You'll notice that it spends a lot of time on this one moment when the astronauts were allegedly beyond the Van Allen belts trying to take a far distance shot of Earth at the halfway point to the moon. Now, this doesn't sound very important. It sounds like a boring part of their mission. But actually, we find out in the documentary that this part is absolutely staged. That's like one of the biggest pieces of evidence is that they have that one scene staged. So the only question left is, why would anyone stage being outside of the Van Allen belts? Part of the reason is because they want us to believe that the moon is way far out there and it's a huge object when it's actually within our Earth's atmosphere, which is something I claim. Regardless of how big the moon is or anything like that, the real objective of the Apollo mission staged event there was to show humans outside the Van Allen belt for the only time you're ever going to see them. So yeah, that was staged, makes it very clear that there's something there and that if you look at Russian literature for early launches in the USSR, you'll actually find some evidence that in the very first flights, this one woman astronaut, the first woman astronaut, got near the Van Allen belts and almost died. And she was telling them to go back down, and then the ship didn't and went back up instead. And she almost died. So for whatever reason, she almost died. I hitched my theory that you cannot leave these Van Allen belts. They actually keep us alive. But even if they didn't, you have this ship, right? You got a spaceship keeps you alive. You would have to contend with the solar electromagnetic field of our sun. It would form around your ship. It would provide your ship with immense energy, no longer buffered by Earth. If you could build a ship that can deal with that energy, then yes, maybe you could space travel. But now we're talking about an extremely hostile environment for humans, one that actually isn't so bad for machines. Machines can get to 700 degrees and make it through 
these conditions. They can land on Earth, they can get up, and they can walk around, and they can change things. But if they were to be seen, then the jig is up, right? So, or the worlds, essentially, if you look at it as a cover-up instead of anything else, you'll start to see that the clues point at everything that can't possibly be true. You got these creatures inside the pods who survived the trip somehow, and they're sitting in this pit, defenseless, and they managed to build the entire tripods themselves while they're there. And then they walk around these tripods, and by the time they get things going, they get sick and die. And boy, these are the stupidest brain creatures we've ever seen. So we sort of have to start to rule out what doesn't make any sense about some of these so-called science fiction stories and see if maybe there are, in fact, redactions that were part of, you know, World War One and Two, racing, book burning, all those old books, and rewriting them to something modern, you know, something that basically is not true. Right. You kind of say that World War One and Two, more so World War One, was manipulated by the Martians or kicked off by the Martians, and that in the chaos of the war, so much other stuff was being done. It's like the Kansas City Shuffle in that movie, Lucky Number Slevin. It's like, don't look at what my left hand's doing over here. Focus on the right hand. Got it. <laughs> but right before that, in the 19th century, you have all this literature about people on Mars, humans visiting. They visit here sometimes. Sometimes they're hostile. You know, it was all spilled out. You have people that mapped the water on Mars as it changed in the seasons. They thought they saw canals. You know, this literature has never been accounted for yet. A lot of people say, oh, the people who saw canals on Mars must have been using blurry lenses. You look at these stories closely and you look at what detail they've described cities and life on Mars. It could not have possibly have been a mistake. These guys were just studying life on Mars. So after World War One and Two, by the time it does settled, these stories were gone and redacted. But still today, no one can account for the, those images, these great detail about these canals. So not to get into too much of the history there, but I actually do have a theory as to why they did see all those canals back in 19th century and why you don't see them today. And so I kind of hitch my theory on that as well. Yes, you say they removed the water and everything kind of went underground. How does that play out? Right. So unfortunately, let me just get right to the point. The people who are behind this are not the average people on Mars. The vast majority of humans are normal, just like you and me. And the controlling faction are a type of human who has gone through every stage of technology, stay as long as they can, alive as long as they can. They sort of became vampires. They could not create their own blood anymore. And then they go into the next phase, which is they go into like a little bottle, and then they put their bottle into this machine, and then their machine becomes their body. There's all this literature that these types of beings can exist for about 100 years or so, at which point they get sick of that lifestyle and they want to go into the fourth state of existence, which is called Archons. Archons online have many different descriptions. No one knows what they are or who they are, but in my opinion, Archons are a surgical process of putting one life form into another. So anyway, you got these humans, ex-humans on Mars who've been around for a long time and have a sort of family banker control structure over their entire planet. It would be well within their power to construct all of the cities for everyone and then just say, deconstruct them, we're in charge now. And unfortunately, I believe that's exactly what happens. They duped everyone on Mars into thinking that the 20th century is going to be peaceful and we're building cities and everyone's going to be happy. And then there was this devious plan to start war here on Earth. But while the dust was settling, they realized here on Earth that people had already observed the life on Mars. So 
Unfortunately, I don't see any other way, but those cities on the surface of Mars would have had to have been dismantled to keep this World War II story of how it actually went down going forever. As soon as we see Martians, then our modern history unravels. Hmm. I like it. And as we're kind of trying to pull this all together, I know it is so much that we fit into two hours, but where did our sun come from? And is it possible that it goes negative? The suns appear to be fixtures in our cosmology. There is no universe. There's no galaxies. We're just one big galaxy. The Hertzsprung-Russell diagram has led to a lot of lies, like the idea of many galaxies expanding with billions of light years in between them and stuff like that. There's no such space in this universe. We're actually in a very structured, ordered universe, a cosmology. And everywhere you go, you'll find structure. Our sun is a structural fixture point. It's being pushed against other points. And these points in the sky are fixed. Everyone agrees that the stars are fixed and that they have not changed in history. Some articles will dispute this and say, of course, the stars change. But the truth is that the stars should have changed a lot more by now had they been floating around in a chaotic Newtonian universe, and they don't. They're all fixed in place. So structured universe, ordered. Hmm. Well, I guess my thought is if this once happened before where our sun went negative uh, in its charge, couldn't that happen again? Or I guess what triggered... So Saturn ejected the Earth because it was growing and getting too big, and it ended up on the outside. And then when it ejects enough stuff, its charge goes with it, and it goes the the body goes negative. But could our our sun couldn't go negative in a similar way, or could our sun ever eject a planet that we can see and be like, "Hey, something's wrong." Like I want the spell to be broken if this if this is a correct paradigm, and I'm looking for that thing that would do it, or I'm looking for a change that would rival the change we've been through, I guess there isn't one. Well, it'll be the next creation of planets. So when will that happen? I think these planets are going to have to die off, go to the outer orbit, and make room for something like this to happen again, at which point you're going to have some kind of insertion scenario from an external source connecting to our sun. So our sun can never change charge. It's the biggest thing around in this area. Everything else is smaller than it so that when Saturn shows up, it will transform. Saturn has a gas-layered giant, strips a layer off of it. But what would Mars do in the same situation? In antiquity, we found out that Mars has erupted its entire surface at points. That entire surface collided with Earth. We have all this iron ore all over planet Earth. Mars meteorites jump-started the Iron Age and so forth. So at some point in history, an entire shell of hollow Mars exploded and came apart. Why would the outer shell of Mars explode and the inner shell stay the same? It's because everything has a layered order to it, and the outer layer is the only one that's in play. And when the sun's positive environment reaches a positive outer layer, that positive outer layer must strip out, and the next one below it is the negative layer, so that one's stable. So now you got the inner layer of Saturn, negative cathode, connected to the sun, positive sun, and everything is now stable again. Like a snake shedding its skin, sort of. Oh, yeah, totally. Very natural. So could the Earth shed its outer layer? Earth's different from Mars and Venus. Venus doesn't have a rocky core or anything like that. They say it does. It doesn't. It, in antiquity, it took many shapes. It appeared as a dragon. It appeared as the Ouroboros that bit its own tail and wrapped itself around the Earth. 
So you can see Venus is something else. It's a huge gaseous soupy kind of thing. It's very hot and very charged. And Mars is a rocky kind of cold planet. It can't go much closer to the sun because it can't take any much, much more charge. It doesn't have much more water. So Earth, right in between. You got a lot of water, got a lot of mass. You don't have anything that's causing our shape to change. We're a very stable planet that supports life. And you pretty much have examples of the other kinds of planets on either side. Hmm. <laughs> well, you definitely have thought about this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Before we end, what's the next chapter of our story? I guess I should ask it that way. That's a good question. I never got to go into World War II, which is actually where I completely started all of this. But I do want to leave with a thought that, you know, here's the kind of questions we have to now ask. Let's just assume technology was available 300 years before they say it was. What does that say about World War II? The one where basically planes and napalm won the day, changed the face of the earth. My question is, was somebody cheating? Was that even a real war? Do we even know if those planes had pilots in them? You know, Those are the kind of questions that now need to be asked about the 20th century. <laughs> yes. Wow. Well, man, this has definitely been one hell of a ride. Really fun and interesting. Your site clearly has way more material than we could cover. So I would want to remind people to dig into it for themselves and let them know uh, anything you want to about the context of the website or anything you might be working on next. Yeah, please, guys, tell me where I'm wrong. I need to know where I'm wrong. That's <laughs> the most important thing to find out. That's so funny because this is such a radically new paradigm. But as Terrence McKenna said, if this is true, it should be able to take the pressure. Yeah. If there's flaws in it, I need to know the flaws so I can keep looking or say, wow, you know, I really was on the wrong path. <laughs> maybe not all of it, maybe just some of it. You know, I'm wanting to learn. The only way I learn is to make mistakes. Right on. Be told you're, why you're wrong. Yes. Well, I thank you for your time. I appreciate you walking through this seriously dense and epic research. It's obviously a very big story that takes a lot of time to tell. But I always appreciate an epic and unique perspective, and you certainly offered us that. Keep it up and take care out there, man. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks a bunch for this. You got it. Rock me like a hurricane, Ironside Chatters. How about that? I thought Ari did a great job for giving his first interview, right? Not an easy thing to do. It's complicated material. I know it's easy to get tripped up or not know where to start with a subject that's so huge, but I liked it because we got to talk about the Electric Universe model again, which I'm such a big fan of, but once you've talked to the two main guys and did pretty full, robust episodes about it, I don't know where to go with it. Maybe people out there know some more Electric Universe gurus that would want to come on the show. Maybe people that have a slightly different angle on it that I'm not aware of. I try to make episodes that cover something like the Electric Universe pretty complete and pretty timeless. And even though people don't always comb through year-old archives for fresh material, I never want us to just be repeating ourselves. So it is great that Ari is using a theory that I find really intriguing as a basis for crafting this narrative that he finds to be more likely and is certainly unique. And the fact that it is as wild as it is means it's right for us. 
And I know so much of our modern technology makes it a bit harder to entertain that we are as ignorant of our positions in this reality as cattle in a slaughterhouse because we got satellites and real-time global communication and huge military monitoring of so much of the planet. But there is something curious about the apocalyptic material that has been classified and taken pretty seriously by agencies like the CIA. It seems pretty obvious that they have explored these sorts of avenues, and who knows exactly what sort of reconstructions they've actually entertained or what conclusions they've come to. It would be interesting to know how different their model really is. But it's also that perception that there are no more great secrets that contributes to perpetuating the status quo and that whole idea of hiding something in plain sight. I like that you really have to unravel an entire paradigm to understand how Ari comes to these conclusions. Martian overlords sounds even more extreme if you don't wrap your head around this new school of thought on the formation of planets and the mechanisms that cause their movements and their relationship to the sun and to each other. To just say Martian overlords, <laughs> it's not enough. You really got to unpack all these layers. And just to say that the pyramids could have been planetary portals or stargates, it doesn't sound as convincing as it does when you consider this electric universe model and the energy transfer between planets and the idea that maybe we had some sort of cosmic tunnels from one to another. Could it be that humans kept building pyramids in different locations trying to recomplete the circuit as it continued to come undone? I've always liked the idea that the pyramids were chambers that facilitated consciousness travel, like astral projection, and really amplified those sorts of effects while the body was still in the little box floating on the water or whatever it is. Kind of like a super enhanced float tank, maybe. Because physical travel is a little tougher for me to really entertain. But what do I know? It works for me because this isn't just some broad idea. Ari has a lot of the details worked out, and it does relate to fields of study that he's had in the past, and I love the boldness of his claim. Yeah, so guys, tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> it's just funny to me. I'm sure some people will tell him where he's wrong, but I would love to see that dialogue take place. I would love to see him respond to any logical fallacies that you think you see, because to me, this is ironclad. But his technical and historical knowledge, it is impressive, and it does add a layer to the whole, well, what if aspect to all of this. So consider this episode your mental exercise for the week. Hopefully you all enjoyed a break from the heaviness of our times and the dominance of politics and almost any discourse. I consider it a breath of fresh air, and you guys know that I like the idea that truth could be seeded and hidden in fiction and connected fictional authors are propelled to the tops of their fields and their work has a resonance because it's actually hidden truth. This matrix of lies and distractions keeping us caged into a worldview that's so small and so bland in comparison to the real possibilities. It's fun to have a guest that starts with dismantling commonly accepted ideas that we've been fed and says, well, actually, these things don't hold any water or they're deeply flawed, and so we need to throw them out and start from scratch. So we're making conspiracy fun again, 
tying in some of the most interesting threads in the space, hollow planets, the pyramids, the electric universe, Anatoly Fomenko, what's not to like? Call me the Baskin-Robbins of conspiracy podcasting because I got a flavor for everybody. And for those who might be inclined to say, well, you're only doing something outrageous like this because you're afraid of the big ban, so you're avoiding the hot topics. Wait until you hear the next show before you go too far down that train of thought, because it's certainly a YouTube ban invoker for sure. And who cares, because we got THC+, and that's where the real magic happens. If you liked this episode, you should want to hear it in its entirety. Sign up for Plus and support a show that you want to remain around and actually get something for it. In this Plus show, we talked about the Exodus event, the mysterious events of 1666, the tripods, revelations, Fomenko, no shortage of good stuff folded in. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com, because I think it's time we discard this idea that things we value are just going to be supported by other people or ads, because they aren't. But you know this, and you also know about Plus by now, so... My life is in your hands, dude. And I don't really have a lot to add. I just had a good time and I hope you did too. Don't forget about the mysteries of reality just because they don't make it on the nightly news. Keep your heads up and your pimp hands strong. I wish you all the best and I'll see you next time. Big thanks again to Ari. Dig into his work a bit deeper at ParadigmThreat.net, a site that even in itself triggers that sort of early 2000s internet nostalgia that I miss so much. But either way, I declare this meeting of the Midnight Society closed. Your move, tripod pilots, pyramid portal placers, and Martian overlords. Your fucking move. Get through the gate downtown, walking fast. Security passed and I'm homebound. Yeah, well, that was the plan, but I got flagged. Beaten and gagged in my hands, bowed. Now I'm screwed. I'm so screwed. But I still wonder if I could stall, get past these guys. Those documents would expose the lies. Cause I know just break through tonight bioweapon disease so many coups blue beam two and more conspiracies i was close to the prize but now these guys are wiping clean my precious memory I'm so screwed, but I still wonder if I could stall, get past these guys. Those documents would expose the lies, cause I know they've got a thousand files if I could just break through tonight.
wanted to see I, I don't want to let this go I, I don't Get through the gate downtown Walking fast Security passed and I'm homebound Plan, but I got flagged, beaten and gagged, and my hands bowed. Now I'm screwed, I'm so screwed, but I still wonder if I could stall, get past these guys, those documents. Just break through If I could just break through Tonight Tonight